Good afternoon. I'm Leslie Tolbert, Regents Professor in Neuroscience at the University of Arizona, and this is Arizona Science. With me today is John Hildebrand, Regents Professor in Neuroscience at the University of Arizona and a member of the National Academy of Sciences, also serving now as the Foreign Secretary of the National Academy of Sciences. So John, what is the role of the National Academy in general? The commonest question I get in my travels around the world and interaction with other academies boils down to this. How do you get your government to listen to your advice? Every government would benefit from listening to the advice from its academy, but it turns out that we are privileged because of the fact that Abraham Lincoln had the genius and foresight to realize that that's the purpose of an academy. Uh, it's not just an honorific to put on your CV and brag about it. He created the academy to be a source of objective, evidence-based advice to the government. Uh, and he understood that in order to have that and have it be reliable, it had to be an organization independent of the government. So he made it a private organization. It's the most independent of its government of any of the academies in the world, as far as I've been able to tell. And, and what do you do in particular as foreign secretary? Well, when he created the academy, he had three things in mind. Number one, as I said, was to provide reliable advice to the government about matters of science and technology. Uh, second was to try to elevate science in this country to the level that then prevailed in France and Germany and the United Kingdom. Uh, and third was to make an honorific society to recognize excellence in STEM fields, science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. Well, the foreign secretary was part of the original charter. It's one of the five elected officers who run the academy, along with a, an elected council of 12 uh, people from different fields. The Foreign Secretary, as the title suggests, is responsible for all the international relations, the global activities of the Academy. And that boils down mainly to my being the representative in discussions with other academies of sciences, of which there are about 140, if you include a handful of academies of medicine. Uh, and that number is growing all the time because in countries that haven't previously had an academy, they're now developing academies. And so this is a, a global network of, of people from the STEM fields who are ready and willing to talk to each other toward the goal of advising their governments and making the world a better place. So could you tell us about some of the most important issues you're working on right now with your STEM colleagues, science and engineering yeah. colleagues around the world? Mainly, I deal with, with organizations of academies. One of them is a big network called the Inter-Academy Partnership that has all 140 academies. Uh, the one that I spend the most energy on is one called the Inter-American Network of Academies of Sciences, and that's one that is an association of all the academies in this hemisphere, from Canada down to Uruguay. And it, it's a wonderfully collaborative, cooperative group that acts upon grand challenges that affect the Americas, but also the rest of the world. Now, I'll give you a couple of examples. One is science education, nurturing scientists for the future. All countries realize that they need to do that. Uh, some countries do better at it than others, uh, but we want to see capacity building in all parts of the world, and in this case, in our part of the world here in the Americas. We focus especially in that e enterprise in developing women scientists, encouraging the career development of women scientists. So we have a program in IANAS, the, the network in this hemisphere, uh, called Women for Science, a wonderfully energetic and effective organization. I like the sound of that. Yeah. Uh, the second one is dealing with water. 
it, it turns out that every country in the world has problems with water. Either they have too much water or too little, or they don't have pure water, or they don't have access to water. Uh, so we have a program that monitors the situation of water in all the Americas and makes recommendations about what governments c can do to be prepared with water resilience, with water purity, and so forth. So that's an example of what, out of many others I could cite. So among these many topics that you work on, what has been the most frustrating or even perhaps the most frightening? I could talk the rest of the day about the scary things that are out there, and many of them I didn't understand or didn't know about before I had this job. But for example, everyone today is worried about Zika virus. It's an example of how infectious disease pathogens arise from seemingly nowhere and, and then become a problem in parts of the world that never had seen them before. Uh, it's a great example. We saw Ebola last summer. So th that's a topic that comes up in all of these networks of academies and within our own academy. What, what can be done to be prepared for and, and to be responsive to uh, the emergence of epidemics or even pandemics of organisms against which we have no defense? One of the other things that we deal with every year is the so-called G7 summit. Uh, these are the heads of state of, the, of seven economically strong countries, F France, Germany, United Kingdom, uh, Italy, United States, Canada, and Japan. And uh, the heads of state meet every year, hosted by one of those countries. Last year in Germany, uh, Chancellor Merkel included as one of the topics emerging infectious diseases and resistance to antimicrobial drugs. We know from just what we've seen in the news since that time last year that this is a huge problem in the world. There's very little incentive for drug companies to develop new antimicrobials because of the, their need to make profit. So what we came to conclude in our deliberations for the G7 last year is that this is a beautiful example of the role that government should play. Governments, in the interests of their people, should develop through research new strategies for antimicrobial combating. And, and when they identify targets and develop drugs, they should stockpile those drugs to be prepared for the next epidemic or pandemic that we don't even know is coming. So you might say you're working hand in hand across boundaries that otherwise have some pretty divisive walls and curtains yeah. <laughs> between them. Yeah, I'm enjoying that part of the job enormously because I personally, on behalf of our academy, have wonderful relations with the officers of the Chinese Academy of Sciences, the Russian Academy of Sciences, now just starting with the Iranian Academy. So these are countries that, from the political point of view, uh, are not friends necessarily, but at the level of science, uh, we're, we always remain communicative and collaborative and f even friendly. This is a wonderful insight that came to me. I, I've had part of my life in the arts and part of my life in science, and, and I realize now, living this job, that in the worst of times as well as in the best of times, there are two communities that get along really well and can communicate and collaborate. One is the science, technology, engineering, and math community, and the other is the arts. Uh, somehow, I won't say we're above the political fray, but we are independent of it. And it's, we now know that during World War II and during the Cold War, and even now when we have bad relations with some of those countries politically, the scientists are collaborating wonderfully to try to deal with the grand challenges that affect all of us. Well, I'm glad to know you're there <laughs> representing science in these international conversations. Thanks very much, John. It's a pleasure. Thank you.
Listen to this and all Arizona Science Conversations at azpm.org slash Arizona Science. I'm Leslie Tolbert.